guys can be seated. I'm going to pick right up, right there in Luke. I'm sorry, no, we're not. I'm turning over to John 18. My bad. Um, if you've been a part of Generations Church, you've heard probably pretty graphic portrayals of the betrayal, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. We cover this a lot, and, and what Jesus has endured for us. Here's the setting for tonight as Jesus is betrayed. There's been a political conflict inside of Judaism. The Pharisees and Sadducees have had this long-running battle for power, and randomly they kind of come together at one moment, and they're both opposing Jesus. And Jesus has kind of swelled with, with followers. People have begun to follow Jesus. The crowds have hailed him as he enters into Jerusalem. People are following Jesus as he teaches them and heals and feeds and, and does the miraculous. He's gaining a following. And the religious leadership at this point, rather than fight one another, which they do constantly, kind of find a common enemy in Jesus. And they kind of rally at this moment and they want Rome, or in this case, what we'll see tonight is Pontius Pilate, who's a governor on behalf of Rome. They want Rome to execute Jesus. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you don't like Sadducees, and you for sure don't like Rome. If you're a Sadducee, you don't like Rome, you definitely don't like Pharisees. And yet, at this moment, they will come together, and they will use the Roman authority that is over them to attempt to execute, and obviously do execute, Jesus. Pontius Pilate is an interesting character in this, and I said this just a few weeks ago as we finished up the book of Mark. Pontius Pilate provides some commentary on the culture and the, and the, the circumstances surrounding Jesus. He's almost kind of an unbiased observer. Now, he has his own agendas. He is a governor, a politician, a person in power. He's unwilling to let things get in the way of that power, but he's neither Jewish, nor Pharisee or Sadducee, he's not, he doesn't really have an allegiance there, so he provides some unique commentary and insight into Jesus. So I just want to give you kind of a main idea for tonight. That was weird. All right, so nobody uses that door, and yet somebody's banging on that door, so that was weird. Sorry. All right. So Jesus, the, the king, tells him his kingdom. Jesus answers Pilate before the crucifixion, saying clearly that he is king, number one, and two, his kingdom is not of this world. This teaching needs to impact us. It needs to change our lives today. Jesus proclaims he is king, and he has a kingdom, and his kingdom is not of this world. And that's his message, and he has this interchange with Pontius Pilate. Now, I'll just give you kind of a, a, a side note into the mind of a pastor around holidays. So I imagine most of you go to Good Friday every year which means there's like four passages you hear every year. It's like, how many times can you hear Luke 2 at Christmas? Even when your adorable child reads it, it's still Luke 2, right? It's still the same thing. And so every year as each holiday rolls around, I just kind of look at the passage and just ask, okay, the message is enough. The crucifixion is enough for us. But how do we go about this? And tonight, what I just saw was there is a unique conversation between Jesus and Pilate that leads to the cross. So I want to focus more in on that. And as always, we ask ourselves, like, where do we find ourselves in the story? 
I'll give you a clue at the beginning. We're not Jesus. So there's that. John 18, verse 33, that's what we're going to pick up. It says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate asked a very clear question of Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, here's the, the kind of the cultural setting. Rome is in charge, and there are lots of Roman nations. It's an empire. There's lots of nations that are ruled by Rome. Some have citizenship and kind of full position. Others don't. Jews don't at this point. And so they're kind of second-tier people in this Roman world. And so you could be a Jewish king. That's what the Herods were. And yet a governor in Rome would be over you. So you could be royalty and yet not in charge. And so Pilate kind of walks into this room where Jesus is, and he says, it's kind of like, I've heard these things about you. I'm trying to wrap my head around who you are. Are you a king? Verse 34, and Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Which is not exactly what you think somebody on trial for their life would say, right? So where'd you hear that? Right? So how did you come to that conclusion? Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? You can imagine Pontius Pilate at this point like, why do your people not like you? Like, why do your own people not like you? Are you a king? I've heard that. Why did the chief priests, why did the leaders of your faith, why did they deliver you to me? Why are they calling for your execution? What's going on here? In this moment, you know that famous phrase, I tried to figure out even today earlier who originally said it, but uh, the enemy, my enemy is my friend. Right? There's an old proverb that says something similar Sun Tzu said something like that. There are some others, and nobody really knows where its origination came from. But it's the idea, if I'm opposed to you and someone else is opposed to you, we have something common. And at this point, Judaism, the Jewish religious leadership, which really function like political parties. The Sadducees are kind of like the religious left today, kind of Democrat left today, Republican right, more conservative religious right, more like the Pharisees. And so these are really actually very similar, and they're political parties inside of Judaism who use Judaism to meet their ends. But when it is politically expedient, they'll also work with Rome. And they'll kind of use the Roman system to get what they want and even come together to meet a mutual end. Verse 36, and Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. I want to pause there for a minute. So this part that Nicole read to us earlier. As Judas brings Roman soldiers or, or Jewish, Jewish temple guards into the garden, they go in to arrest Jesus, and, and Judas is going to betray Jesus. He's going to hand him over. He's going to identify him by kissing him. And it, depending upon which gospel you're reading, what we learn is an event that takes place where a disciple cuts off the ear of a guard. It's Peter, and he cuts off the ear of a man named Malchus. And Jesus stops it, and Jesus heals Malchus on the spot. So we just heard that. As they're betraying Jesus, as they're arresting Jesus, Jesus is saying, no, we're not fighting about this. Like, we're not here 
to fight like that. Now, I want to read this again. Verse 36, so Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So the key for tonight is that Jesus is a king and Jesus has a kingdom. It's kind of a necessary thing. If you're a king, you need to have a kingdom, right? I talk to people, I meet somebody and say, oh, I'm a pastor. Somebody else will say that to me. I'm like, oh, well, where are you a pastor? They're like, no, I mean, I, like, I went to school and, and did this. I'm like, so do you actually like, serve at a church anywhere? No, I haven't for years. I'm not sure that really qualifies as a pastor, right? Like, pastor kind of requires people. It's kind of a needed ingredient, right? Shepherd, sheep, something like that, right? King, kingdom. It requires that you have a kingdom. So as Jesus is proclaiming he is a king, as he's having this dialogue with Pilate about a king, about him being king, and about a kingdom, he says two things here. One, my kingdom is not of this world, and two, my kingdom is not from this world. Now, all throughout the gospel narratives, the message Jesus proclaims like the first message Jesus proclaims, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here is, we're bringing the kingdom in, come and be a part of the kingdom. And so here's what goes on. He says, it's not of this world, it's not from this world. It's not the same as this world. When we use the word kingdom, we think of this world because that's all we have. But Jesus says he is a king and his kingdom is separate from this world. Now, a lot of times our minds will run off to heaven, eternity, forever. And that's not what Jesus is saying either. He says, my kingdom is separate from this world. Not future, but now. I'm a king now. I have a kingdom now. But it's not of this world or from this world. My kingdom is other. So we'll put this up. Not of this world does not mean heaven. So not of this world and not from this world both mean separate from this broken world, but are still present now, not just in eternity or heaven. In Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark 1, it says this, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled Everything is ready. The kingdom is prepared. Listen, believe, repent. Listen to the gospel. Enter into the kingdom now. Now, yes, the kingdom will have a kind of a completion, a fulfillment that will look different eventually. But Jesus says, my kingdom is at hand. My kingdom is now. My kingdom is here. If I were to ask you, is Jesus king of kings today? Yes. Is his kingdom now? Yes, Jesus is king. And this is the dialogue he's having with this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So verse 36, I want to read that again. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. How clear is Jesus that his kingdom is not of the world we live in? It's really clear. Says a couple different ways, but repeats that it's not of this world, not from this world. If Jesus speaks of his kingdom in this way, he even says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have fought. 
That's his contrast. If it were this world, my servants would have fought. So if Jesus speaks repeatedly about his kingdom now, and it's not of this world, why do we spend so much time fighting for this world? Why do we spend so much time contending for this? So here's a note for you. Jesus makes two key distinctions. Christianity, like first century Judaism, is fighting for a kingdom here on earth. But the kingdom where Jesus is king is not from this world or of this world. It is entirely separate and other. Jesus' kingdom is different. It isn't here. It isn't this. It's here now. We are his kingdom. But it's not of this world. It's not what we give so much of our time to. It's not what consumes so much of Christianity so often. Much like first century Judaism, just like we see lots of parallels in Sadducees and Pharisees and our modern day political parties. But we also get to see this. They are so engaged in fighting for their here and now 2,000 years ago that literally they're willing to buddy up even though they don't get along. They're willing to work with Rome whom they hate just to achieve a political end to get rid of Jesus. They will work with people they can't stand because it's expedient. Because they have a common enemy in Jesus. And the problem with Jesus for them is that he has influence. That people are following him. That people love him. When he teaches, they're like, man, this guy's teaching is different. It's authoritative. It's powerful. It's, it's fresh. It's God. And then he heals people, and he cares for people, and he feeds people. And then the religious attack him, and he kind of fights them off with just simple words. And so he's drawing a crowd. As he walks into Jerusalem, they shout, Hosanna. Like, we want to make him king, but again, not of this world. They want to make him a king here, now. If it was today, we'd be running him for president but he's like, that's not what I'm doing. I want you to see the differences. Verse 37, so it says this, then, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside in the Jews, to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So here's this Roman governor who's listening to Jesus. So are you, a, are you a king? I mean, that's kind of the rumor. You're being called king. I don't get it. Why are you here? Why are they calling for your death? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's other. And so he pushes back and forth and even like, you know, what is truth? That's you know, like we hear a lot of today, like, live your truth. Nothing annoys me more, by the way. It's either true or it's not true, right? But there's where Pilate is. Like, what is truth? Is it subjective? And so he walks back out to the Jewish religious leadership, and he says, I find no guilt in this man. Like, I can't see what it is you guys are saying. I don't see anything wrong here. Verse 39, he says, but you, Pilate speaking still, 
but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, meaning Jesus? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. This is an understatement. Another gospel says he is also a killer. And so all of this leads up to the resurrection, this dialogue with Pontius Pilate on the front end about this authority and kingdom and kingship of Jesus. And he walks out and he says, I find no guilt in this man. What do you want me to do here? In fact, I have a tradition on Passover of releasing someone to you, kind of a a carryover from being released from slavery out of Egypt. Like there's this tradition. And so I have a tradition of releasing someone for you. How about I release the king of the Jews? No, we'll take the bad guy over there. Like, no, we'll take, we'll take the bad guy, the robber, the murderer. We'll take Barabbas. And so all of this happens on the front end of Jesus going to the cross. And as I read through this, I was just like, this isn't a conversation I've heard talked a lot about before the cross. And so it continues into this, this line or this language of king and kingdom. So we'll put this note on the screen for you. All this is context for the, for the crucifixion. So tonight, viewing the crucifixion, let's view the crucifixion tonight through the lens that Jesus is king, the kingdom is not of or from this world, and ask us how should this refocus us today? You see, this isn't in the gospel for no reason. This conversation with Pilate isn't there without a purpose. And the conversation is back and forth about who Jesus is as he's being led towards the cross and crucifixion. So let's keep that in our minds and ask how that would shape us today. So John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. So he beats Jesus. We've talked about this a lot. Jesus would be beaten here beyond recognition. Where his back and his front will be brutally just whipped and beaten. Verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And so as we move towards the scourging or the, the flogging or whipping of Jesus, again we hear that they put a mock cross together, one of thorns that they beat down on his head. And they put this mock purple robe on him. And even the soldiers, Hail, King of the Jews. And again, this theme keeps going. Verse 4, when Pilate went out again, he said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt to him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So Pilate beats Jesus, has him beaten. And the soldiers that do this know this conversation, know the conversation and culture about Jesus being this quote-unquote, king of the Jews. And then inside this private room, a conversation we're given, Pilate and Jesus have this conversation about the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus. And as they scourge him and beat him, they begin to mock him and make him a mock king and put a a purple robe on him and, and put a crown of thorns on him and pretend to bow down to him and taunt him and mock him as a king. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. 
The religious leaders want Jesus dead. Rome doesn't. Pilate doesn't. Pilate goes out of his way to say, I don't find any guilt in this Jesus. I don't see what you see. You called him a king. He said he's a king. He says he has a kingdom. He says his kingdom's not of this world. We don't have a conflict. I hand him back to you, and you say, no, kill him. Well, I release somebody every Passover. No, we want the bad guy. You keep Jesus. Crucify Jesus. He says, you crucify him. I find no guilt in him. But that's the problem. Judaism, because of their position, because of their status inside of Rome, does not have the authority to carry out a capital punishment. They can't execute Jesus. They don't have the authority. And so they continue to bring him back to Pilate. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. There's this critique of Christianity that the things that Jesus said 2,000 years ago have been kind of escalated and added to over the 2,000 years the church has been around. Well, Jesus never said he was God. He was just a good teacher, just a rabbi. He's kind of a nice guy. It, they wanted him dead because he claimed to be God. Go back and look at John 6 when he uses the term, the name of God for himself, and they pick up stones to kill him on the spot. See, Jesus claimed to be God and claimed to be king and claimed to have a kingdom that is not of this world. And that's why they want him dead. So here's a note for you. Kingly authority of sonship. Jesus' claim as the son of God makes him a king with God's authority. He has the right to rule the kingdom as he is as is his as the son of one, the one true eternal king, God. He has the authority and the right to rule a kingdom because he's the son of the true eternal king, God, who created everything. This is what Jesus is claiming. And this is what Judaism wants him executed for. As he is saying he is the true son of God, making him the true ruler of everything and claiming in himself divinity and equality with God. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. When he hears what Jesus says, he's even more afraid. When he hears what the Jews say he has said. Verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. I love this no answer moment right here. Now remember the setting. Jesus is basically on trial for his life. Now's the time to be humble. Now's the time to answer questions, right? If you want out of here, you do what you got to do. So are you a king? Nope. Just a humble, just a teacher, right? Did some fancy tricks with some food once, but just a teacher, right? Raise a guy from the dead. We really talk about that a lot. No, he says, yes, I'm a king. And my kingdom is not in this world. Pilate's like, I got no issue. He claims to be God. Pilate gets weirded out. He gets a little afraid. He goes back in, where are you from? And Jesus just doesn't answer. See, he's not fighting for this. He said a while back, if we had been fighting for this world, we'd have fought in the garden when the guards came. We're not fighting for this world. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, it says. 
So he asked Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. Verse 10, then Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So Pilate exalts himself. So he, he puts himself, and he does positionally have this authority. He is the authority. He's the governor of, Rome, of this province in Rome. Don't you realize I have the authority to give you life or to give you death? That's what he's saying. I control your outcome right now, Jesus. Verse 11, Jesus answered him. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You actually have no authority, Pilate. That's what Jesus tells him. God lets you do this. And he kind of lets Pilate off. He says, it's not really you. It's the one who betrayed me in the garden. He has the greater sin. But when Pilate says, why don't you answer me? I have the ability right now to give you, to give you the rest of your life. Or I can take your life from you. And he says, you actually don't have that choice. Only God. God has brought me here to this moment. It's Jesus saying, I'm here right now because this is the plan. Because this is how I enter into my kingdom. This is how I take the throne. This is not of this world. I'm not fighting for this. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you. So again, another note, a greater king, a greater kingdom. Christians, remember what is greater and more powerful. Jesus is greater than any president or political party. Jesus is the answer to what humanity can't fix. When Pilate exalts his authority, Jesus is like, yeah, no, not so much, man. There's God and me, and we give you that. And this is my kingdom. And you're worried about this. And Judaism is worried about this. And I'm not worried about this. I have overcome this world. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Judaism, when you hear Jewish religious leaders, or I often say the Jewish religious elite, what you think they might be making their claim about. Maybe their faith, right? But they're not. They're making political cases against Jesus. Anybody who calls himself a king is an enemy of Caesar. Wait a minute, five minutes ago, you were an enemy of Caesar. You can't stand Caesar. Just a few days ago, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, you were shouting for him to become king and out Caesar. That's what you wanted. But tonight, it's politically expedient to speak well of Caesar. It's like every four years or so, everything this news channel said, all of a sudden, this news channel says, oh, this guy's the Antichrist. No, this guy's the Antichrist. It's the same thing. Because it's politically expedient. And that's what they do. And this is the religious elite. And that's the problem. And that's what we see today. Verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat, him down, on the, and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Okay, am I... 
adding something here? Or is this passage about a king and a kingdom? Like, I'm not making it up. Every other verse, we're talking about Jesus being king. Pilate's either asking, are you a king? Jesus is saying he's a king. Jesus is talking about his kingdom. He's telling him, here's the king of the Jews. The Jews are like shouting, no, don't say he's our king. And then Pilate says it anyways. Here's your king. How do we miss this? How do we work through this narrative every year and not see the emphasis that is being brought out by Pilate and Jesus in this drawn-out, long narrative between his betrayal and his death? Verse 15, they cried out, away with him and crucify him. And Pilate said to him, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, listen to this. And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Who does that? The runaround atheist Jew? No, the chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar. Do you see how political power and worldly power have invaded Judaism at this level, making them all about this thing, willing to say anything, do anything to get to their end which is getting rid of Jesus. Hey, we'll work with Pilate. We'll shout for Caesar. I mean, we hate Caesar. We wish Caesar would die and we could, and we could rule again. But right now, Caesar. Yay, Caesar. We'll work with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and like we'll all pretend we get along. Right? Like the Senate or something. Right? We'll pretend we can occupy the same space not hate each other, because we want this end. We have no king but Caesar. Who needs God? We got Caesar. We got Pilate. He'll get done what we need. Verse 16, so Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, verse 17, he went out, bearing his own cross to a place called the Place of the Skull. In Aramaic, it's called Golgotha, where they crucified him there with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So here's the gospel that we always talk about. There's a God who created you and loves you, designed you, made you to be a way, right? A specific way. That your way, the way we are all called to live, the way we are made to, created to live, is to be worshipers of God. That we are designed to bring glory to God. Now sin enters into human history in the first set of humans. And it's passed down, and we inherit it. We inherit sin, and then it's kind of like we get on that kind of you know, stationary bicycle of life and add our part, and we inherit sin, and we add to sin, and then we hand off sin. We're designed to be worshipers of God, to give glory to God, but sin breaks that. And so we're separated from God by sin. And so in that, as we are outside of the way we're designed to be, that we're, we're living in a way we were never made to be, God could leave us there or God could fix the problem because we are incapable of fixing the problem. We can't overcome our own sin issue. As hard as we try, we can't overcome it. Like Adam and his wife in the garden who try and cover their shame and cover their nakedness and, and with their own hands be their own forgiveness and redemption, try and cover themselves we can't. And in the garden, God literally has to strip them of their efforts 
and cover them with the skins of animals. And, and, and at that moment, all the way back in Genesis 3, God proclaims this moment to come. That the offspring of the woman will come and Satan will bruise his heel, but he will crush Satan's head. That he will enter into our story. He will be the offspring of a woman. But he will come and he will have victory over Satan, victory over sin, victory over death. And then in that moment, that's where God sacrifices the first animal. So you can't cover Adam and his wife in the skins of an animal without sacrificing that animal, without killing that animal. To skin that animal, to cover their sin, teaching them sin equals death. And one day, death will overcome sin. And so as Jesus goes to the cross, he is fulfilling that penalty for sin that you and I have earned, that he is innocent of, that you and I deserve, that he does not. But out of love, God's love for us, he wants to reconcile us back to him. He wants to restore the relationship. And so Jesus goes to the cross willingly. That's why there are moments when Pilate asks a question and he just doesn't need to answer. He's going to the cross to reconcile us to God, to restore the relationship. Because that is God's desire, and that's Jesus' desire for us, is to be in relationship with God, that our sin would be covered. And so it isn't about fighting for this world. Jesus is fighting for his kingdom. And he is doing so by fighting for you and for me. And he is fighting for us by giving his life for us. Because he is de-emphasizing the world we spend our time striving for. And he is fighting for the kingdom, his kingdom, that is separate from this world. That he achieves his throne, his kingship, by giving his life. In Hebrews 12, it says, Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's a throne for? Oh, thank you. A king! Because it's consistent all the way throughout Scripture. Because Jesus achieves the throne through his giving of his life. Go back to that early moments of ministry. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and then the Holy Spirit leads him away into the wilderness to be tempted. What does Satan tempt him with? It's really a shortcut. Hey, let's skip the cross. Let's get straight to being in charge. Let's do it this way, not God's way. Kind of what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. But where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Adam and Eve fail in a garden in paradise, Jesus succeeds in the wilderness. Jesus overcomes this world. He overcomes this world for us. He ascends to the throne by giving his life. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You get the irony here? Do you get the jab at the Jewish religious leadership? that Pilate kind of thinks he has the last word in that moment. And on the cross, he really does. And hanging, inscribed over Jesus, much to the dismay of the Jews, it says, King of the Jews. Verse 20. 
Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. They're saying, hey, listen, Jesus said he was king, but we didn't. There was this famous black preacher, S.M. Lockridge. He gave this amazing message on a Good Friday service years and years ago. YouTube it or Google it. And his whole message, and I can never do a black preacher voice, so I won't even try. I would just probably get canceled or who knows, right? His message would say, you know, Jesus is dead on the cross. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming, right? Jesus is in the grave, and the stone is covering the tomb. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And it goes on, it goes on. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And listen, S.M. Lockridge is amazing. Dr. Lockridge was amazing. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's like, it's Friday, this is bad, but Sunday's coming. And that's not what he's saying. It's dark. But light is around the corner. Sunday's coming. This isn't bad Friday. It's good Friday. It was a hard, that's an understatement, but it was a hard Friday for Jesus. It was a hard day on the cross. It was the hardest of days. But why is it good Friday? Because it inaugurated the kingdom that we get to be in. Because on the cross, Jesus began something that only Jesus could begin. So it's Friday, and yes, Sunday is coming. But Friday begins the kingdom. Friday covers sin. Friday begins a king and authority. So did Jesus fight to fix a two-party political system? No. He says, this is not my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. He didn't fight to retain a physical life, a physical presence. He didn't fight for comfort. He said, no, my my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is separate. My kingdom is other. He didn't fight for Jewish rights so they could have a better life. He fought for a kingdom that we could all participate in and live in and be in now and forever. He didn't fight even for the downtrodden so much. Yes, he said to love others. Yes, he said care for the marginalized, care for the weak. But he also said this. He says, the poor you'll always have among you. This world will always be broken. There will always be struggle. There will always be racism. There will always be crime. There will always be inequities. There will always be wrong. I'm not fighting for this world. I'm fighting for the kingdom. Because in the kingdom, there is none of that. Because in the kingdom where there is no more tears, where there are no more sufferings, loss, and pain, there is also no more sin. There is no inequity. The kingdom is without sin. Because the kingdom is not of this world. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. The tunic was seamless woven in one place from top to bottom. They said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots to see who it shall be 
And this fulfilled scripture saying, they divided my garments among them for their clothing. They cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So God begins to fulfill years of prophetic promise in Christ, in this moment, in the people surrounding him. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, to John, he says, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. See, widows in this culture, without a husband, without a son, would often be destitute, would be poor, would be marginalized. So in this moment, hanging from the cross, he looks down and he cares for others. He cares for Mary. He says, John, look after her. Verse 20, after this, 28, excuse me. Jesus, knowing all that now was all finished, he said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. And they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. What does that mean? This is a famous line, the te telestai in Greek. People talk about this. It is finished. Is it, it's finished. The, the penalty for sin, yes, absolutely. Sin is atoned for. But this life is also over, and your king and your kingdom have come. It is finished. This death is finished. It is finished. Jesus has done everything necessary to usher in the kingdom of God fully, where you and I live today in the kingdom presence of Jesus as king empowered by his spirit, that we get to live in a new way. But again, we said we're going to ask this question. Who are we most like in the story? We're not Jesus, that's for sure. So we'll just kind of put that one off to the side. We're not Pilate. We're not some kind of unbiased observer without a faith who's, not looking, who's, who's separate from this story. There's really only one group of people left. We're most like today. Today, you and I often find ourselves, the American church often finds itself like first century Judaism, embroiled in the politics of this world, embroiled more in this life than in the kingdom to come. And Jesus repeatedly distances himself from that. He says, listen, we're not fighting for this. We are fighting for this. My, my servants would have fought the one guy who did that, I healed the guy he cut. Because we're not fighting for this. Church, we're not fighting for this world. We are not trying to fix this broken thing. We're trying to learn how to live in and bring in the kingdom here and tell others about our king. The Jesus who gave his life to sit on a throne that we might be his kingdom that overcame our sin to give us new life. Jesus was seated on the throne today, and I want to get ahead of the story to this Friday, and Sunday's coming, right? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are the king. Your work is done. The gospel is complete. The kingdom is here so why are we fighting so hard for this? Help us 
to stop being so rooted and grounded in this earthly kingdom and miss all that you have for us today and forever. Remind us that this world is not our home, that we're here for a minute, but we are forever with you, and that our time here is best spent doing kingdom work, loving our neighbor, sharing with those who don't know you, bringing the healing and redemption and peace that we have found in you, bringing that today to people. Forgive us. We are just as, as earthly kingdom-minded and politically-minded and grounded here as anyone and so divided over it. Help us to lift our eyes up out of this world, just above, a little bit, just up to you. And let us fix our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith, who for your kingdom overcame this one, who for the joy set before you, as Hebrews just said, endured the cross, scorned its shame, and now are seated on the throne. Jesus, help us follow our king. Help us fight for the things that matter, not for this world that is dying. Help us fight to see people come into your kingdom. But let us remember, this is not our home. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.